Hey there, I'm Eugene, and I'm one of the pastors here at Menlo, and I'm so glad you're with us this weekend. What a week we've been through. Either you've been refreshing your browser nonstop or waiting eagerly for notifications to pop up on your phone, or maybe, maybe you just went to bed on Tuesday night and decided not to even think about the election and wait until all the votes are counted and the results are announced. One of the funniest memes from this past week was the theory that Kanye West had actually won Nevada, and they just didn't know how to tell the rest of the country. I I don't know about you, but I've talked to a lot of people this week who've been anxious and worried and stressed, and rightfully so. A friend asked me what I was going to say this weekend at church, and I said, I'm waiting to see who wins the election. And then he asked, why does that matter if your faith is in God? Ouch. He was preaching to the preacher. He was naming my anxiety and my concerns over this election season. And in 2020, this angst has been building up for months. The pandemic has all of us on edge. We've never been more stressed and irritable. Business Insider reported that 70% of people working in Silicon Valley are more burned out than before COVID. Two-thirds of working parents with kids in distance learning are experiencing depression and anxiety. There's social unrest in our country. There's the pain and the evil of racism and injustice. And just when it couldn't get any worse, the Dodgers and Lakers both won championships. If you're on edge, you're not alone. One pastor named Andy Stanley wrote an article for Time last week, and he said, nothing divides like politics because nothing divides like fear. And what is it we're afraid of? Well, he says the answer is the same for almost anyone you ask. We fear loss. We fear losing control, safety, uh, power, opportunity, status, our rights, our freedom. People fear what has already happened to them and, and people fear what might happen to them next. Everyone fears the unknown. Elections are important and we should approach them with prayer and hope. But regardless of who wins, whichever way it goes, if you're a follower of Jesus, you can still flourish spiritually, relationally, and emotionally because your ultimate hope is not rooted in a political party or a president. Andy Stanley encourages believers to find a way to love someone with whom you disagree. He says, Christians can disagree politically, but we must love unconditionally and pray for unity. Fear should not fuel our actions. Love is the power we need, and love must fuel both our conversations and our choices. The gospel will spread just as Jesus intended when we, Christians across America, are willing to humble ourselves and seek unity and love. We can agree to disagree. We can love without strings attached, and while our country is divided on who should be the president, the church must be more united in love and prayer than it's ever been. Regardless of who won or lost the election, the church wins or loses based on how followers of Jesus love others. It's not ultimately about who's in leadership. It's about followership. It's about discipleship and apprenticeship to Jesus. When Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he concluded with a statement of surrender. He prayed, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory. 
When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're saying, God, we give everything over to you, every decision, every outcome. It's all yours. None of it is ours. And we follow you. If you're part of our church, you might have heard that we've been on a journey to pray together for 90 days. One of the prayer prompts from this past week was to be a community that is kind when we disagree with one another. Imagine if everyone from our church prayed and lived this week and next week and the following week with the simple goal to be kind. No matter who you come across or where you disagree with someone, what if what others experienced from us was nothing but kindness? Remember, kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. And I have to tell you, this prayer was so timely for me because I can struggle to be kind in my words and my actions and my deeds. It's not too late. You can still join and pray with us for the next 45 days as we finish the year on our knees in surrender to King Jesus. But not only have we been praying together, we've also been studying a book together in the New Testament called the Acts of the Apostles or Acts for short. It's a book about the founding of the church and the spread of its message throughout the Roman Empire. It's a story of how the church got started. And through this series, we wanted to look back and remember what mattered most then to remember what matters most today. The book of Acts was written to encourage us that the Jesus who came to reveal God and his love on earth is still alive with unlimited power and continues to do what he began to do and teach what he began to teach. The point of the book of Acts The point of the kingdom of God, the point of the Christian life is that Jesus is alive and well, and he's in charge of the world, and it continues to be at work in the church and through the church. His is the kingdom. His is the power. His is the glory. Acts takes place after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, and the story shows us that Jesus is not distant, and he is not silent, and he is not weak, and he is not uninterested in the world and the progress of his mission. He is alive, and what he began to do in his earthly life, he is continuing to do through the church and the disciples. And like every good story, it is full of surprises. There there, there is a tension in this story. It's, It's the tension that holds, that keeps our tension, and it's the reason there's a hero a protagonist, someone who needs to save the day. There's a problem to be solved and and good stories keep us in suspense for how things will get worked out. In the opening chapters of Acts, the, the Christians were gathered together and the church was growing. People were joining their fellowship every single day. Luke, the author, tells us that everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs and that they enjoyed the favor of all the people. There was great joy, but... But then there was a problem. Starting in chapter seven, the political and religious leaders decided to tamp down on this movement. So the church began to experience severe persecution. So naturally, the people are now afraid. They're concerned and they're scattered. It tells us in in chapter eight that a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And one of the key people behind this persecution was a man named Saul. And it tells us that he began to destroy the church, going from house to house, dragging both men and women and putting them in prison. 
imagine what the early church believers were feeling. Imagine their fear and their worry. I imagine their hope in the balance, in jeopardy. Maybe they thought it was all coming to an end. There is no peace. The pressure was too great and nothing was going to stop or change this. Have you ever felt this way? Do you ever feel without peace, without hope? Does that ever keep you up at night? Does this kind of sound like this past week? But then, suddenly out of nowhere, something remarkable happens. Jesus steps into the story and takes over. Saul, who is breathing out murderous threats against the believers, is confronted by Jesus on his way to a city called Damascus. And Saul isn't just confronted, he's radically converted. He goes from being the worst enemy of the church to the strongest advocate and most powerful leader of the Christian faith. The person who was most feared by the church, the person responsible for so much pain and suffering, God had now chosen and set apart to preach the gospel. But that's not where the story ends. Paul didn't just have a dramatic encounter with God. He, he didn't just uh, have a change of heart. He didn't just change his name from Saul to Paul and, and live happily ever after. There was another problem that had to be solved. You see, Paul's conversion was controversial and it was really confusing to everyone on both sides. Uh, everyone knew who he was. He was a significant member of the Pharisees. He was highly trained and educated. He was powerful and his reputation preceded him everywhere he went. The Christians were afraid of him and, and didn't trust him. This was how the church responded to Saul after his conversion. They were suspicious and skeptical and they didn't welcome him into fellowship. And who would blame them? I mean, one day he's arresting and torturing Christians, dragging men and women off to jail. And now he's trying to join the fellowship, saying he's one of them. And remember, Paul switched allegiances. He switched sides. So his former allies, the Jewish leaders, they're also up in arms. They're upset and angry and they want him dead. It tells us in Acts 9 that there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill Paul. Now imagine that you're Paul. Put yourself in his shoes. And you've dedicated your life and career as a Jewish leader. And your particular assignment is to keep Judaism pure and set apart. And this meant people like Jesus who showed up and tried to redefine the rules and turn their beliefs and traditions upside down. They were your opponents they were your enemies. And your mission is to keep these rebellions and uprisings in check. Paul was very good at this. And thus, he was feared by the church, by the Christians. But now Paul's world, his life is turned upside down. The man he was trying to persecute has now become his Lord. Paul changed sides. Now his former allies want him dead. And his new team, they don't trust him. And they think this is just a ploy to infiltrate and attack them. Paul has nowhere to turn. He's in between a rock and a hard place. And he has enemies on both sides. But something happens that changes his life and his destiny. And I believe this 
is where we can learn how to love as Jesus taught us to love. You see, not only did Jesus step into Paul's life, but God, God worked through another person, a follower of Jesus, a disciple who led with love, who took the teachings of Jesus seriously, who lived with the kind of love that casts out fear, who stepped up with bold courage. This person was a humble, surrendered follower of Jesus. And I believe, I believe we can learn something from this man. His name was Barnabas. Acts tells us in chapter nine, verse 26, when Paul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Barnabas told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus, he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. You see, before Paul ever launched his ministry and started planting churches, he first experienced grace and acceptance and radical hospitality from Barnabas. It tells us that Barnabas stood up for Paul and took him under his wing when no one else was willing to do it. Barnabas welcomed Paul into fellowship. He advocated for him when no one else was willing to give him a chance, when no one else had the courage. Barnabas showed, showed Paul kindness and grace. Barnabas did not let fear fuel his decisions. Love was what motivated his actions and conversations. And as a result, not only did Paul receive acceptance from the other believers, they began to work together. And the gospel began to spread throughout Asia and the entire Roman Empire. You, you see, that's what love does. That's what love can do. It can change hearts and minds and communities way better than fear can. It spreads and grows and overcomes hate and evil. Love builds up. Love restores. Love is kind. We're living in one of the most divisive times in the history of our nation. The anger and animosity and rage seems only to grow and be fueled by hate and resentment through social media and cancel culture. And that's among friends and family and people we know. Loving our enemies, as Jesus teaches, or those we disagree with, or those who voted differently than us, well, that sounds aspirational. I mean, maybe something optional for saints, or maybe that's extra credit for spiritual overachievers. But we can all learn something from Barnabas, how he treated Paul the way he did and how he was surrendered to Jesus's command to love. Jesus was, was pretty clear on what our attitudes and actions should be toward others. And I'll be the first to say how much I still have to learn about this. There's a small group of guys in my life, close friends, and we talk almost every week to encourage each other and process things we're going through. And we have this, this set of questions that we'll often go through and ask one another. Questions like, how are you doing spiritually? Uh, how are you showing up as a husband? Or how are you doing as a dad or as a friend? Are you taking care of your mind and your body? And then there's a question on the list that asks, did you show love to a stranger this week? 
And honestly, that's probably my least favorite question because it's the one I'm least consistent with. It's so easy to forget and ignore. And most weeks, my, my answer is no. I didn't show love to a stranger. You see, I, I know how lacking this is in my life. And when I think about the way we're called to serve, as I read about the way Barnabas loved Paul and welcomed him, I have to own up to the fact that I still have a long way to go. I have a lot to learn. I have to surrender my will to God. I have to trust in the power of his spirit to do what I can't do on my own. And then I have to pray for yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory forever and ever. You see, our country doesn't need more hate or animosity or anger. It doesn't need people on different sides of a political line that are holding each other in contempt. What our country needs are more authentic, grace-filled, hope-producing, loving people who accept one another in Jesus' name. The person who occupies the Oval Office is not the person we surrender our lives to. They are not the inspiration of our love. It's the person who occupies our hearts. And his name is Jesus. Who is Jesus calling you to love this week? Who do you need to show grace to? Who do you need to stand up for and extend hospitality and welcome to? Imagine, imagine what would happen if our community, if in our country, in our world, if we humbled ourselves for unity and love in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you because you are still on the throne. You are still in control and you continue to call us to love one another. Father, give us the strength and the courage to be like Barnabas, to build bridges, to break down barriers, to love radically, to show kindness and grace and acceptance to whoever it is you bring into our lives. God, we know that what the world needs now more than anything else is your love, your healing, your truth, and your grace. So God, call us and send us into the world to be truth tellers and to spread your love. We pray this together in your name. Amen.